The Zaddy Zone, welcome to the Zaddy Zone, Zaddy Zone, welcome to the Zaddy Zone. When you say burn fats, you're talking about the the fat that you've eaten. Yes. So there's this big um, analogy from people thinking that if I fat burning or when I train, I'm going to be burning more fat and vice versa. So fat burning and fat loss are two totally different things. All right. So fat burning means fat oxidation, which means if you're on a high keto diet like yourself naturally kind of now, your main fuel source for your workouts is predominantly going to be fat because that's your main source of food that you consume. That does not mean you're going to get lean because the only way you're going to be able to get lean is by a calorie deficit. So fat burning and fat loss are two different physiological understandings and people sometimes intertwine these incorrectly um because if you're not fat like if i'm essentially eating more fat i'm gonna be burning more fat if i'm eating more carbs i'm gonna be oxidizing more carbs but if i want to be in a calorie deficit it doesn't matter what i'm doing i'm just gonna be in a deficit (laughs) does that make sense right yeah it sounds like fat burning was uh you know phrase coined by keto (laughs) enthusiasts to try and get people to go on keto yeah and be like it it burns fat it's like yeah because you eat fat and when you exercise you're going to be burning fat because there's nothing else that you're eating yeah like if you're in a deficit of a keto diet you will be losing fat because it's a deficit it's not because you're eating more fat essentially right it's it's funny like why weren't there two words you know made for the term fat dietary fat and being fat Yeah. It should be two different words. Yeah. Like bod- bodily fat, you know, like they should be two different words. And so they've gotten very confused over time. So when we say fat loss and fat burning, we mean two different types of fat. Yeah. And it's just because a lot of noise in the nutrition like, like industry, right? So for an everyday person, and that's uh, and it's also unfair for them because they're just learning from that. So their knowledge deficit is quite, you know, is there. So they're just like, but I'm just doing what I've been told. I'm like, yeah, but what you've been told is inaccurate. And they don't know the difference between what is true and what isn't. If you look at all the um, macronutrients, carbs and fats are the ones that are predominantly used most of the time with exercise. So without getting too complicated, you know, the lower the intensity of the exercise, predominantly fat is being utilized, right? As the intensity increases, that's when carbs kick in and they become what your body prefers to utilize for that workout. So, you know, hence CrossFit and high intensity sessions and all those types of things. So hence why carbs can be broken down quicker and be utilized for energy. So that helps you with like less fatigue and hitting the wall. Essentially, your body simply can't do that with fats for that intensity. So, I mean, well, it can, but it's a very lengthy process um, and it takes a long time. So I always say to people, why work harder when you can work smarter? Because your body's always going to try to find ways that's more efficient. So let's just say a guy like me is going to go and do a CrossFit class. It's going to be bunch of strength and then a whole bunch of strength and cardio thrown in the way that crossfit classes go you know wads and all that the best way you're telling me is an hour before make sure you eat a banana that'll fuel you pretty well for an hour or so yeah so let's let's just say for you because you're around about let's just say arguing 100 kilos so if you're going to be more precise and even sports nutrition like i said can be applied to all individuals but even for yourself as someone who wants performance goals um, it's around about 0.5 to 1 gram per kilogram body weight. The 1 gram, because you're like, well, tell that's 100 grams of carbs, you probably don't need it for that workout. It's just that range. So looking at 50 grams, so you could go like a, for you a banana um, and a piece of toast and a little bit of honey. Um, or you could go, you know, raisin toast or you could go dates. Um, like those types of things are going to be adequately, I guess, enough for you for that session. Yeah, right. So, okay, now let's just, let's say uh, you are looking to, get in shape, lose weight, what would you want to eat after a workout? Yep. 
Um, so depending on when it is, I for me, I always try smoothies. So I don't know if anyone else notices it with training. And it'll depend on the type of training that you do, right? But for CrossFit and that sort of stuff, um, even with trying to put on muscle with a strength component, I get appetite reduction, and that's a byproduct of training. So sometimes people will lose their appetite after training, um, and that's got to do with the training adaptations as well as hormonal changes. But what we want to make sure is that it's something that you consume relatively, you know, within 90 minutes. So I would do a smoothie, or otherwise I'd lead into the next meal. So if I'm training in the morning, breakfast will suffice. If I'm training in the afternoon, um, and then I finish around six or something, then going into dinner is going to be fine as well. Making sure that, you know, predominantly most of your plate as per se has a fair amount of carbohydrates, a good combination of, um, you know, protein, some fats, and then obviously lots of vegetables as well. Yeah. So you're kind of saying instead of having that big protein shake that you would want to have, you know, for building muscle, just look to get to the next meal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that just like anything, the dose is a poison with everything. You know, you can have too much protein, you can have too much water. So you just want to find that sweet spot for the individual and getting them to understand that if you just go to the next meal, you're ticking two boxes. You're getting everyday nutrition and you're getting, you know, that the 10% of your pre and post-training nutrition already sorted. Yeah, yeah, no, that does make sense. And I do want to talk about this because um, I love the stuff that you post, particularly around disordered eating. And I know I've struggled with I've struggled with, I guess, distorted, disordered eating, or at least the way that I view food, you know, viewing food as uh, or like if I eat food that's considered bad, then I want to punish myself with working out or, you know, think less of myself when I eat food that's bad. Let's talk a little bit about disordered eating and like how you came to uh, get passionate about it. Um, I think within the CrossFit community, it's heavily, it's heavily prominent. So you can see that that whole aesthetic and the performance are kind of mixed so a lot of people want the performance goals, but their disordered eating patterns are like, no, I don't want to gain weight. I want to stay as lean as I can. I shouldn't be touching carbohydrates. So all those patterns are, I guess, more of disordered eating behaviors. Um, and the problem is, and the reason why I got a lot more passionate about it is because when people come in and see me, I care about their intent as to what they're doing things for, because that describes a lot about what's going on with their current nutrition intervention or their current nutrition behaviors, because if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, we then need to re-educate them to understand their um, reason as to why it's not ideal to be doing things this way and also working on their relationship with food because there's a lot of noise, like we spoke about at the start, um, with what is considered, you know, people will classify food as good and bad. And essentially there's no such thing as foods that are good or bad, only ones, you know, bad foods are ones that are toxic and you're allergic to and all that sort of shit. But other than that, food is food. It has no moral value um, in terms of the fact that, you know, it can fit in an overall part of our diet from a healthy and balanced perspective. And that's the kind of information I always want people to understand because the moment you start having rigid food, food rules, you then start falling down that trap of the behaviours associated um, with disordered eating and then your potential risk of that then turning into further consequences of like, you know, um, you decrease health and well-being so when you have issues like that you want to determine with the individual what their main cause was to be like that so for example yourself you might be like i had a shit day at work so then i've gone home and i've binged on junk food um because you know food is fuel but it also has so much more to that it's an emotional attachment for many an emotional connection so it's then trying to determine why their coping mechanism has been food and then breaking that down um, and coming up with suitable interventions. So it, most of the time with this style of, you know, concern, it's a multiple, multiple um, disciplinary team approach. So you should be working with a dietitian 
you know, you should be working with a psychologist because this can then increase your risk of eating disorders down the track. So um, I'm really passionate about it because of the whole, you know, body image um, noise around you should be this type of thing, you should be this type of aesthetics in CrossFit, and we know that aesthetics and performance don't go hand in hand. So I'm very much about creating, you know, a healthy understanding and your intentions as to why you're doing something and if it's for ill cause, and you may not know it's that, it's just redirecting your thought patterns so that you can have food overall and enjoy it from a health and wellness perspective. What are behaviours that people should look out for? Yeah, so it's usually, um, you know, there'll be compulsive eating, there'll be restrictive eating, um, like they could be doing intimate fasting um, because they are scared of eating food after a certain time because they feel like they're going to be gaining weight. Um, it can be that they need to exercise for the calories that they've just consumed from a bad food, um, that they consider bad food, um, over-exercising, under-eating, purging, over, you know, there's a whole collection of what could be considered. So those are factors that we kind of pick up on. Um, if they have food rules, obviously, rigid food rules, like I won't eat these um, because they're not classified as clean um, or these foods are like I won't eat, I'll only have them on the weekends or I'll save my calories up and then I'll you know, eat them back and eat most of my calories. So things that aren't classified as, I guess, normal eating routines or patterns. And because of the fact that any of those, I guess, examples could then lead to further um, health consequences down the track too. Yeah, I mean, I, I did find it interesting when we were working together because I, I'd never logged my food or I'd never like, yeah, noted what I was eating. It was absolutely interesting and fascinating to me. But is there a way to um, log, you know, if we're going to be, counting calories or we have a really specific goal in mind and we're going to be doing that that we don't get disordered about it yeah so i guess when i'm first assessing an individual if i think that they have issues around that then tracking will never be an option because um it's going to do more detriment to them and it's not going to be serving them it's going to be hurting them i always like to say to someone if your nutritional strategy is causing you stress we need to find something that's new because it's not forming a healthy relationship with food. And that can be hard for someone to identify. But always remember when you are tracking, tracking can be a great tool. Don't get me wrong. Like it teaches an individual a lot about their food, but we only ever want to use it for education purposes. And we also want to be mindful that it's not a permanent thing. It's only there to educate you. I think it's important to understand too that when we are tracking that, you know, food labeling can have up to 30% error. So we're never going to be able to be 100% accurate with anything that we know and we just want to take it as a grain of salt. And when I'm telling people to track like you, I was like, okay, just you know, focus on hitting your protein, your carbs, and your fats. Make sure you have a good amount of fiber. Um, don't worry so much about your vegetables because you know they don't have minimal calories. Um, it's not like you need to be worrying about to that degree by any means anyway. And you don't need to track exactly to the gram. So if I said to you, you need 200 grams of steak or whatever, and someone, you know, you got like 210, I wouldn't really care. But if like, if you're a person like, no, it needs to be 200, it has to be only this, then I'm like, okay, now we're starting to have red flags that it could be potentially um, like not ideal for your health and, and mental capacity. Yeah, got it. Well, that's really good. I'm glad we got to talk about that. Um, I, I had... Um, a number of questions from women with PCOS about how to lose weight when a person has that condition. What do you usually, how do you usually deal with a client with PCOS? So PCOS is a, I just thought PCOS is short, um, is a, one that you just got to be really careful with how you communicate to an individual and the language that you use. Um, PCOS itself, um, when a person has that condition, you naturally, it will naturally be harder for them to lose weight 
um, and they might have a higher weight and their BMR might be, so basal metabolic rate, um, maybe potentially lower. So essentially what that means is the metabolic rate may be lower. So that collectively overall means it may be harder or more difficult for those women to lose weight. So when I have individuals coming in and you can see that they're quite distressed because they've tried all these factors, my, um, you know, first thought to them is like, okay, maybe weight loss is not the best thing that we should be focusing on because I can see that it's causing you a lot of mental distress. Let's reframe this and let's focus on something on like, okay, your performance and their mindset changes a little bit because you've got to be very careful um, because they might already start to have signs of disordered eating because they're fixated so much on weight loss. But the problem is most of the time people don't really understand PCOS well. So doctors and not saying doctors but people can diagnose it and you know don't really and then the individual doesn't really understand it that well um so therefore they're just slamming weight loss and not realizing that certain symptoms of PCOS can make that um you know more difficult and because they have a lower metabolic rate and that type of thing too so once they have that better understanding of the condition itself um I think they feel a little bit more comfort towards it but in general when it comes to PCOS the same principle applies just like anything when it comes to wanting to lose weight, is that a deficit needs to be initiated first, so a calorie deficit first and foremost. Um, and then from there, you know, depending on the symptoms the person has with PCOS, because there's a range of symptoms, we don't need to go into that because that's quite detailed, um, your interventions might be different based on what those symptoms are for the person. But generally, overall, what we want to see is a healthy foundation. Again, we want good quality carbohydrates, whole grains, lean proteins, plants, marine fats, and we want that spread throughout the day. It's also a bit of a focusing on the quality um, of the carbs over the quantity when it comes to pico. So we do want to make sure they're more minimally less processed um, and those types of things. But I'm not going to give an answer that they would have loved to hear because the evidence is still <laughs> the standard for an, um, you know calorie deficit. But also I would recommend working with a dietitian that specializes in that area so they can make sure that they're understanding and, you know, their behaviours around food um, can be monitored and um, targeted to make sure they're getting the best outcome. Yeah, that's that, that's good stuff. Have you ever recommended inositol for people with PCOS? Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence of that in terms of um, strong evidence for that for when it comes to um, regulating periods, the insulin and that sort of thing too. Um, again, it's dose, I mean, not dose dependent, it's going to be dependent on the individual, do you know what I mean? So because most of the time when we find people coming in with PCOS, they may not necessarily be eating the best anyway. So you always want to start with the basics, work towards that, figure out where we can make their general diet well, you know, what their doctors are recommended and vice versa, and then supplementation if needed, um, and making sure that they have sound, you know, anti-inflammatories in their diet and all that sort of stuff too. Um, so there is a little like pros and, you know, with it, it's a very, it's, I'm not saying, I don't know what it's like to feel like it because I definitely don't have it, but we do have a lot of individuals that we see in clinic, but just being very supportive and empathetic for someone um, going through PCOS because of the fact that naturally they, like I said, they find it more difficult to lose weight based on their uh, BMI, BMR, sorry. Yeah. Love that. Thanks for talking about that. If you have enjoyed this short little podcast here, well, me and Taylor Wales Ryan did a one-hour conversation at episode five. So go back and check it out if you really loved this. XOXO, Zaddy. 
So I got myself a Soma Vedic in the house. I got it about a month ago and I want to tell you about it because I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. The Soma Vedic is this little circular colorful thing that you plug in and it creates a harmonic field in your environment reaching 100 feet in all directions, penetrating through walls and floors, etc. Now, why do I have this thing plugged in? Well, it's to help me mitigate the effects of EMFs coming from, you know, uh, electronics or Wi-Fi, etc. Now, this thing does not block EMFs, but rather supports the body and helps bring it back into equilibrium from the negative effects of EMFs. You know, it lowers blood pressure, heart rate variability, blood oxygen levels, cellular regeneration, and restructures water, the water that you drink, which improves absorption and hydration. But this little thing can improve sleep, focus, energy levels, moods, it even lowers free radical levels. So many customers who suffer from headaches and migraines report significant improvement. There's a 60-day money-back guarantee, risk-free, five-year warranty. And if you're interested in the science, which, which is what fascinates me, you can go ahead and I'll put a link to it right here. And you can see the images of water and blood before and after it has been exposed to the Soma Vedic. This stuff is super cool. And as I learn more about the possible harms of EMFs, I'm so happy that I have one in my house. Visit somavedic.com and use code Zaddy at checkout to save 10% off your purchase. That is somavedic, S-O-M-A-V-E-D-I-C.com and use code Zaddy for 10% off. Love you.